Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a Lenten preaching edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is a weekly sermon, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. I'm the Reverend Meredith Jane Day, Episcopal priest and curate of Grace St. Luke's Episcopal Church and School here in the heart of Midtown Memphis. Our guests this evening are Rabbi Micah Greenstein and Rabbi Judy Schindler. Rabbi Greenstein is the senior rabbi at Temple Israel in Memphis. He has been named as one of the city's most significant leaders and was recognized as the first Memphian of the year by Memphis Magazine in 2013. Throughout the tenure of his career, he has received countless awards, including the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Be the Dream Legacy Award in 2016 at the historic Mason Temple. Rabbi Schindler is the Sklut Professor of Jewish Studies and the director of the Stan Greenspan Center for Peace and Social Justice at Queens University in Charlotte, North Carolina. She has been named Rabbi Emerita of Temple Beth El in Charlotte, received countless awards, including Charlotte's Woman of the Year Award in 2011, and is the co-author of the book, Recharging Judaism, How Civic Engagement is Good for Synagogues, Jews, and America. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to be with each of them this evening as we discuss the topic of reconciliation and its possibility and importance in the world today. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Micah Greenstein and Rabbi Judy Schindler. Well, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it's so good to be with you both. I'm Great really just honored to be able to have this time and this space to share with both of you. It's truly an honor. So my first question for tonight is actually more of a curiosity. I would just love to know where the two of you met. You seem to be friends. <laughs> I hope you're friends. So tell us more about how and where and when you met. Well, it is great to be here in Memphis with my good friend, Rabbi Greenstein. And we met in 1997. We were both younger rabbis then. And we were invited to this, this conference for, uh, it was really a retreat with rabbis across the different denominations. So when we talk about reconciliation, sometimes we talk about reconciliation across boundaries of difference. We think about interracial or interfaith uh, reconciliation that needs to happen. But this conference was really about a denominational reconciliation and relationships, how we would work as rabbis across lines of difference. So here we are in the middle of Providence, Rhode Island, in the middle of winter for about five days with Orthodox Reform Reconstructionist Renewal Rabbis. And um, it, was, it was an amazing week of study and learning, but also we all come from different backgrounds. And there are times when it was great to, to study together and find those common ground, find that common ground. And at other times, we really felt more comfortable in our own circles as reform rabbis. And it was there that Rabbi Greenstein and I built a strong friendship that has thankfully been enduring. Judy, there's more to this. Uh, <laughs> we actually met before we were born, or before we were conceived. Our, our dads were both rabbis in Massachusetts in the 1960s. 
And in 1962, our parents were friends, and my dad was the rabbi in Springfield, hers was in Worcester, and they were at the same camp, summer camp called Camp Tevye, as in Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) I was born in January of 63, so maybe your parents are responsible for encouraging my parents to have me. I could go that far, who knows? It was, I I never thought of that. Um, But 35 years later, at this Retreat. I'm sure Christians all agree, but there's a joke, two Jews, five opinions. <laughs> and um, she and I and a wonderful rabbi from Marin, California, and one other rabbi from Arizona were the four reform rabbis. And then there were four orthodox, four conservative, three renewal And the convener of the conference told us to be prepared. So we reform rabbis, we studied up on our Hebrew to show the Orthodox that we could read the Talmud. (laughs) And the Orthodox, they learned the contemporary worship, Debbie Friedman healing prayer to show that they weren't crazy and they're in touch with the modern world. And we get there, and Yitz Greenberg, the rabbi, says, turn to a person from a different denomination and answer this question. What do you admire most about their stream of Judaism and what are you ashamed of most in your own? So that diffused and just changed the whole complexion of the mood and the room. And then, can I just tell one more story about how we really bonded? Um, Judy has a great sense of humor. We both take what we do seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. The Orthodox rabbis wanted to have a meeting because we were in a holodome in Newport, Rhode Island in January of 1997. It's like 50 below outside, but there's one pool for an hour of recreational swim. (laughs) And the Orthodox rabbis did not want men and women to swim at the same time. So in a very deferential way, Rabbi Yossi, we'll call him, called the meeting at four. We're all together, and we had built this friendship. And he said, look, um, is it okay if we do male swim at 4.30 and mixed mixed gender 4 to 4.30? So Judy and I have the same thought. Um, You know, we're fine with it. Um, The Orthodox... Um, of course, are going to be swimming only men only. But then we have this another denomination of conservative, which is on the fence. And we're like, what are y'all going to do? <laughs> and they said, oh, we're swimming with Judy and Stacy. <laughs> I love it. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's been really fun to just get to see you both together. And I know this is a nice reunion of sorts. So we're here because it's the season of Lent. And in Lent, we talk a lot about wilderness. I think Naturally, for Christians, that image probably comes from the text from Matthew, the gospel text that we heard just this past Sunday in our lectionary text of Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. But the Christian idea of wilderness is certainly predated by the Jews. And there's this image of Moses wandering in the desert, or even, uh, I was thinking about it today, Adam and Eve, really, after the fall, the post-fall moment for Adam and Eve is then in the wilderness. Eden itself becomes wilderness. And so, as rabbis, I'm just wondering how this concept of wilderness, which we as Christians value so much in Lent, how does it play a role in each of your lives of faith? Well, first of all, the 
fourth book in the five books of Moses is called In the Wilderness. We, we say numbers in English, but of course, the Old Testament uh, was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, of course. So um, most of the five books of Moses happen in the wilderness. Most of the experience of our people happens in the wilderness. And a distinction is made between the wilderness and the desert. Things grow in the wilderness. Um, there's only one place where the sun um, always shines, and it's, that's called the desert. There's no growth. But in the wilderness, going through the season of Lent or going through life, um, I don't want to be cliche, but you have to go through the journey, and it's in that journey that you discover who and what you are. You know, the book of Numbers, we not only make it through this wilderness wandering for 38 years, we leave Sinai and Leviticus and we get to the edge of the River Jordan to enter the Promised Land at the end of Numbers, and Deuteronomy is this sort of reflection on the story. Um, and it was a liminal time where we were growing and learning. It was in the wilderness where we received Torah, because it is that moment that we are open to revelation, but I don't want to miss the important point that we complained the whole way through the book of Numbers. The, actually, we, the first Jewish family, they were named the Winers. The Winers? I, I, call, I call the book of Numbers Sefer HaKvetch, the book of Kvetching. That's good. That's good. So we complained the whole way through, but when I think about the wilderness times of my life, I think about... I, I, I really struggled with the decision to leave the congregational rabbinate. I'd been in uh, leading congregations for 21 years. I was senior rabbi of an 1,100 family congregation, 2,500 people, and I was just up night after night after night writing eulogies, and I, I made a decision that um, I really wanted to write for social justice purposes, and I really wanted to be that community rabbi that was out there like I am today at a church. Um, I have like four Lent engagements, so I get to talk a lot about wilderness wanderings and growth. Um, and it was a very, very difficult decision. And so I gave 18 months notice so my congregation could find a new rabbi. And I turned in my resignation, and, um, but I was staying and I had no idea what I was going to do. I thought maybe the only thing I know how to do is be a congregational rabbi. But about two weeks later, a study landed on my desk. I didn't even know it had been done. It was a 130-page study of what do we need in Charlotte, and it landed on my desk. We need a Center for Holocaust Education and Collective Justice. And that study was written for me because my dad was born in Munich. A large part of my family was murdered in the Holocaust, and I speak out against injustice because I know what it means and what can happen if we do not stand up and speak out for others. So it is really those moments, those liminal wilderness wandering moments, they are so scary, but those are moments of profound growth. That's right. That's right. It's a beautiful image. And I, I can't help but think, too, back to that text in Matthew, you know, what happens at the end of this temptation of this time in the wilderness is that it says that Jesus is comforted by angels. And it's an amazing image to me that through the wilderness, What's on the other side is this opportunity to be comforted by the angels. Um, so it's true. It's this wilderness, this idea, it's so often where the growth, and that's just a beautiful story, Judy, really a beautiful story of what happened. The word in Hebrew for angel is malach, but it's also the word for messenger. So those angels can be human beings 
who guide you on the right path. That's right. Wow. Wow. Well, as we kind of move into the meat, I think, of what we want to talk about tonight, which is reconciliation, I have to say at my own parish at Grace St. Luke's, we're taking this opportunity during Lent on Sunday mornings during our adult education hour to be talking about reconciliation explicitly. So I've got to say it's been on my mind, especially. And so the word reconciliation, there's a lot to that. There's a lot that that means. And I'm wondering, what does reconciliation in the real world, in this here and now, mean to each of you? And who or what has been your guide in the work of reconciliation? Meredith, you and Judy said it's okay for me to just be totally honest. Um, I'm not a fan of the word reconciliation uh, because I think it is often a euphemism and an excuse for um, conciliation, placating, accommodating, even pacifying. Um, Often reconciliation, while we can wax eloquently about what that word means, leads to feeling good about yourself for doing the work. Um, Often the side that feels good isn't the side that ought to feel good. I'll give you one example. Um, There's a local story made famous in Steve Haynes' book, The Last Segregated Hour, The Memphis Neelands and the Campaign for Southern Church Desegregation. And for those who don't know, it was on Palm Sunday, 1964, at Second Pres, when a group of black and white students began a kneeling to protest the church's policy of segregation um, that would continue for about a year and a half and eventually force the church to open its doors to black worshipers. And one of the protesters was a very close mentor from the day I moved here. Many of you may know her, Maxine Smith. There's a school name for her. Um, So in the book, current members of this wonderful evangelical Presbyterian church invited those who were turned away back to spiritually reconcile um, over 45 years later. So I have friends, doesn't matter where you pray or not, um, who told me how powerful it was at Second Pres that this spiritual reconciliation took place. And um, I remember going over to Maxine's house, she was like a godmother, um, and just to chat, as we often did, and I said, wow, I heard about the spiritual and racial reconciliation that took place at Second. Sounds like it was powerful. And only Maxine, she said, it made them feel better. So um, I was, of course, gracious, and I don't hold on to anger. Of course, I forgive them. Um, So that made me realize that sometimes we don't go to the truth. Uh, They're not synonyms. And uh, finally, I don't want to take up too much time, Brian Stevenson and actually the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis here, and some in the audience are a part of it, um, are my models for reconciliation because I just want to quote what Brian down in Montgomery said, and Memphis is an extension of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. He said, this shadow of lynching cannot be lifted until we shine the light of truth on the destructive violence that shaped our nation, traumatized people of color, and compromised our commitment to the rule of law and to equal justice. So when I'm in Berlin and my foot 
hits a stepping stone where it says, in this house, Meredith, Judy, John, David were deported to Auschwitz. To me, that's reconciliation more than talking about it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, folks often get confuse or confuse the ideas even of forgiveness and reconciliation. Thanks, that's helpful. Wherein yeah, right. I think forgiveness can be one-sided um, because we often think of forgiveness as more for the person uh, that is offering the forgiveness than the other, but reconciliation in its true form and in, at its best, which Desmond Tutu talks about this a lot in um, The Dream of God, his book The Dream of God, is that reconciliation is two parties fully coming together and leaving, having both had this moment of reconciliation, which is different than what you described Maxine having, which it felt one-sided. I'm going to admit a neophyte. This is Rabbi Judy's wheelhouse. Go. (laughs) No. That's right. So it's interesting because on the Jewish High Holidays, which is our time of turning back, and the period of Lent, people come to church uh, for the period of Lent to sort of check in and get rebalanced and think about that renewal. And on the high holidays, they flock to the synagogue on the high holidays. But the work of reconciliation really has to happen in the real world. It can't happen inside the sanctuary. So I want to start with a little story. There was a mother who had a son who was always getting in trouble with his brother. And so she went to the pastor to see, she sent the son to the pastor to see if he could talk some sense into her son. And so the little boy sat in the pastor's office and said, son, where is God? And the little boy was silent. And then the pastor asked again, son, I'm asking you, where is God? And the little boy looked down, giving an unknowing look. And the third time the pastor asked the question, the little boy ran out of the church, down the street, into his home, up the stairs to his brother's room. He slammed the door and said, we are in big trouble now. God is missing, and they think we had something to do with it. That's awesome. (laughs) The truth is, there are so many times when God is missing, and we do have something to do with it. So the work of reconciliation, the work of return has to happen out there in the world. Here's where we reflect on the work we do, we need to do, but out there in the world is where we do that actual work. Um, If you look in Hebrew, the words for reconciliation, I was looking it up because you learn so much from the richness of the Hebrew language. The word is pius, which could be pacify. That was the reconciliation, the hollow reconciliation that Rabbi Greenstein was talking about. But then there's the word hashlama which has the word shalom in it, that completion and that wholeness that comes with reunion. So Maimonides says there are three steps to seeking forgiveness, atonement. The first is saying, I messed up. The second is apologizing. The third is restoring, making restitution if you did wrong. And the fourth is being in the same place and not doing it again. And so you have truth, the truth-telling And then you have the justice, and only then can you have reconciliation. I'm the Reverend Meredith Jane Day, and this is the Lenten Preaching Edition of the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. This evening, I'm with public theologians Rabbi Micah Greenstein and Rabbi Judy Schindler. Tonight, we are discussing the importance and possibility of reconciliation in the modern world. 
So in our long email thread <laughs> between the three of us sort of leading up to this night, uh, we described that this evening might be something like an opportunity for folks to be flies on the wall in the premise of a sort of joke, right? Two rabbis and a priest walk into a bar or a church, <laughs> for example, and though we're not in a bar, at least yet, um, <laughs> There is a sense in which the kind of reconciliation we want to describe, as you mentioned, Judy, is through uh, our conversation that could happen in a bar, or it could happen in a yoga studio, or a coffee shop, which is really a nice and lovely idea. But I'm also wondering, are there limitations to reconciliation? We've started talking about this, that those reconciliations that take place in informal spaces or by way of interpersonal relationships at what point does reconciliation require the overhaul of systems or norms and move towards communal protest? Are there limits, in other words, Are there to limits to reconciliation? So there's two parts to that question. The first is about interpersonal reconciliation. And then there are systems, right? The systems of racism or the systems of anti-Semitism. I once took a dismantling racism course, and they said you could send all the bigots up to the moon, but you would still have racism in our country because our country was built on systems of racism. So there comes a time where we need to understand the systems. Now, I'm a professor of Jewish studies. I teach about the Holocaust. My family large segment perished in the Holocaust. But it wasn't until last March. I was at a, an organizing conference, and I learned about the systems of anti-Semitism, the new systems of white nationalism, and I hadn't understood them. I was like, oh my gosh, here I teach systems of racism, and I teach about the history of anti-Semitism, but I hadn't understand the new uh, tropes and nuances of white nationalism. And what happened is, in, um, after the civil rights movement, white nationalists, they believe in white supremacy, that really those of lighter skin are superior to those of darker skin. Our, our country was built on that false narrative of a hierarchy of human value. And so how did it happen then in civil rights that the black community won rights? It was, of course, because of the Jews. The Jews are in control. And so in Charlottesville, when the Unite the White rally happened, they shouted, Jews will not replace us in blood and soil. Blood and soil means pure Aryan blood, pure white Christian blood. And soil means this is our soil, this is our land. See, Nazi Germany, they needed to expand land for that pure Aryan race. And Hitler wanted to make all of Europe Jew-free for 1,000 years. And so they chanted blood and soil, and they chanted Jews will not replace us, thinking that Jews are responsible for the global change or the national change in demographics, um, that we would be in 2040 a majority-minority country. So I think it's, it's, we need to go beyond just the interpersonal relationships to understand the systems of racism and anti-Semitism and homophobia, and they each have different systems. But I also want to address, are there limits? Are there people and limits uh, to which we have to say, you know what, I'm done at this point. That's not where I'm going to spend my energy. And so I wanted to tell a little story. My, my dad was born in Munich. Thankfully, he got out in 1938. 
And he was a, the head of the reform movement, it had 950 synagogues, and he, he was coming to a city to speak, and he lands at the airport, and he comes out, and the rabbi greets him, who is picking him up, and the rabbi was really nervous because the rabbi drove a Mercedes, and he knew my dad was from Germany. So my dad gets in the car, and the rabbi says sheepishly, you know, I hope you're not uncomfortable in this car. And my dad says... I haven't forgiven the Romans yet for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> and I felt uncomfortable flying through Germany many times, but today I drive a Mini Cooper, which was made in Germany, and I flew to Germany when all the Syrian refugees sort of made their way to Germany and they accepted one million refugees, and I went there that summer to work with Syrian refugees, and I have a profound respect for the work that Germany has done to confront their past and create a better future. You asked, at what point does reconciliation require the overhaul of systems and norms and move towards communal protest? I get chills thinking that steps away from where we're recording, my predecessor, Rabbi Wax, led hundreds of ministers as president of the Memphis Ministers Association, arm in arm with Episcopal priest, Father Viron, to Mayor Loeb's office after Martin Luther King was assassinated to demand the end of the sanitation worker strike. He practiced a book that was transformative for me that many of us, I'm sure, have read, Henry David Thoreau's On the Duty of Civil Disobedience. And the premise in that book is that there is a higher law than civil law that demands um, the obedience of the individual, that human law even and government are subordinate when it reaches a point of moral conscience where each, uh, basically the premise is each individual is responsible for creating the society they want to live in. So were it not for civil disobedience in this country, um, then we would not have the amendments which enabled women to vote, blacks to be full citizens of this country. Um, so I, I think there is a point, uh, but we do well to work at ameliorating the system rather than seeing everything as a revolution. It takes time, but how long is too long? Sometimes um, the urgency requires action and protest. We're not, uh, that, that Thoreau's book is, is really the reason we can now look back and take pride in how far we've come, even as we regret how far we have to go. Um, I just wanted to say though, since you mentioned the um, two rabbis and a priest walk into a bar, I've been waiting to share this. Everyone here can see it. It's a picture of a rabbit holding a beer. It could be uh, Odul's. And it says, a priest, a rabbit, and a minister walk into a bar. The rabbit says, I might be a typo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This was getting heavy. I had to throw it in. Thank you. I, I don't really know how to follow that, to be honest. Um, 
But, but the next thing I did want to talk about, and you mentioned this procession that happened to Mayor Loeb's office, and that gives us you know, a hint or, or gleans towards interfaith reconciliation and also interracial reconciliation. So let's talk about specific types of reconciliation and what plea, I know you're both involved in this work very thoroughly in your respective positions, and so I want to know first sort of what are you doing right now in terms of uh, interracial and interfaith reconciliation, and also what plea would you offer any of us here in the room who want to or are already engaged in the work? My plea would be to become a critical lover of the other rather than an unloving critic or an uncritical lover. Let me explain. I don't want to talk about all that we do I'm in awe of Calvary, even for during Lent, to have three rabbis in this series. We're living in messianic times when it comes to interfaith relations in the city, and your church has a lot, and your Episcopal church has a lot to do with it. Um, two vignettes, real quickly. One. You invited to this Lenten preaching series Yasser Qadi, Sheikh Imam of the Memphis Islamic Center. Um, there was a video of him uh, before he earned his PhD at Yale and discovered pluralism, where he said uh, some unfortunate things. And because of YouTube, um, that followed him. And there were people who would rather believe the one they don't know, then get to know the one who is uh, a healer. In fact, Yasser has started a seminary for young Muslim boys so that they not get radicalized. 9-11 was his, his awakening. And so when I say be a critical lover, begin with the love. There are unloving critics who may hate, whether it's Muslims or Israel or Jews or Christians. Um, and then there are uncritical lovers follow blindly and just uh, don't understand that reconciliation is about understanding difference and, and not uh, blindly following. So I mentioned Yasser Qadi. One more quick example in Memphis. Many people may not know there's a week, it wasn't called Palestinian Week, but um, it was a time to promote Palestinian pride, but it spilled over into bashing Israel too. And they protested on the corner of Highland um, by the University of Memphis. And uh, long story short, the conference had sessions at Memphis Theological Seminary's annex where I was an adjunct professor for 20 years. And so I called my friend over there and I said, what's up? And they said, oh, they just wanted to use the space. Uh, but I can tell you who's planning this. So I met the two individuals at Crosstown and this master student at the University of Memphis who only saw Israel as though I would take you through Memphis to the worst parts of town and say, that's all of Memphis and can't blame her for her experience, but she told me that I was the second Jew she had met because the first one shoved her at the protest. I not only apologized and said that person's not welcome in my synagogue, but I said to her, I hope you understand I'm a critical lover. I'm not in 
an uncritical lover and I'm not an unloving critic. So when we talk about this interracial, interreligious understanding, it's important that we get proximate, to use Brian's phrase, and that we understand the relational is everything. That it's about getting to know the other rather than talking about the other. So a lot of the work isn't in the news. It's that encounter at Crosstown and we're friends now, even if Yasser and I disagree. So there's a lot going on, but the more it's interpersonal, the closer we'll get to where we wanna go. And I would say this is really difficult work. It's really painful work, it's really hard work. The work of reconciliation does not just happen with a lot of listening to other narratives, really listening and sharing your narrative and ultimately creating a new collective narrative. So there's a quote that I always carry with me in my work and it is by Theodore Roosevelt and he said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's in the actual arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, mm. who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. Because who does not, but who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So um, I sometimes get beat up in the work of racial reconciliation because as a white woman, I shouldn't be doing the work. And as a white woman, I need to do the work in a way that um, acknowledges my privilege and I need to step out of the driver's seat and be in the passenger seat or the back seat. But I can still be criticized for being there. And I will be criticized for doing the work and I will be criticized for not doing the work. So I'd rather be criticized for doing the work. That's number one. Number two, Lilla Watson, an aboriginal abolitionist, she said, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come here because your redemption is tied up with mine, then let us work together. When we go to support another community, no matter what community it is, we need to remember that we are doing with them and not for them. So last year was a really tough year for me. I moved to a campus and there were really tough times as I'm out there in the community with the issue of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And it seems like I can't be in a room without that question coming up. And I got up uh, in May, I was going to be the, or January, I was going to be the keynote speaker for the Women's March. And right before I got on stage, the only international issue the whole day, there was a line mentioning the oppression of Palestinians. And at that moment, you have to decide what you're going to do. And it seemed again and again, everywhere I went, Israel was being criticized in a one-sided condemnation. Um, and there was lots of misunderstanding between the Jewish community and the Palestinian community. 
So what did we do? We started, um, you have room in the inn here in Memphis. We started a, um, it's called Abraham's Tent, Room in the Inn. And it's with the Jewish community and the Muslim community. So um, all the slats have a Muslim friend and a Jewish friend setting up beds, staying overnight, cooking the food. Um, and we do that service. Um, and it's a way to start with relationships. You can't do the work without having those relationships. And it is the first interfaith room in the inn in Charlotte in the 25-year history of room in the inn in Charlotte. And why did we call it Abraham's Tent? Because room in the inn actually comes from uh, the Good Samaritan story in the New Testament, uh, where the Good Samaritan sees someone by the side of the road who's been a victim of a crime, and he looks like he might be dying, and the Good Samaritan brings him to an inn and not only make sure he's okay, but he has to leave and he pays uh, for that person to stay in the inn uh, until he's fully healed. And so, but the room in the inn comes from the New Testament, and as Jews, that's not our scripture. So we chose Abraham's tent, because according to the Midrash and according to the Islamic faith, Abraham's tent was always open, ready to welcome the stranger in. Um, so that's that's when things are really broken, just start with the basics of building a relationship. I, she just prompted another thought. After the Pittsburgh shooting, it happened while services were going on. And since Memphis is an hour earlier, I was handed a piece of paper about what happened. Everyone in the congregation you know, was unaware until the service was over. The first people who came running to temple were our Muslim and Christian brothers and friends. And while the Jewish community had a wonderful solidarity program at the JCC in which the community was invited, uh, about 600, 700 people or so came, that Friday night at Temple, 1,200 people came, including members of the seven mosques who asked if they could come and pray at Temple. All they needed was carpet facing the right direction. And it was one of the most holy, sacred moments. It was a, it was a living example of this tent idea that, that Judy just shared so beautifully. And the other, the other thing is like, I, I know many of you know Barbara Brown Taylor. I, I've started reading her a lot since her book, Holy Envy. Um, when it comes to interreligious dialogue, uh, her three rules she got from Bishop Christer Stendhal, if you wanna know another religion, ask the adherents of that religion, <laughs> not someone else. Number two, don't compare your best with their worst. And number three, practice holy envy. Wow, that's an amazing story, both of you. Um, well, I want to kind of end our time, um, and I thought about this relating to this too, Judy, this, that Roosevelt quote that you mentioned, which I know um, the work of Brene Brown also uh, talks about that a lot. And there are a lot of cheap seats for sale in the world right now. But it made me wonder, is there a particular Jewish prayer or quote or mantra or theology that you carry with you specifically while doing the work of reconciliation? I think about Martin Buber. He talks about I-it and I-thou relationships. I-it is uh, the relationship you might have with your cashier at the end of a long day when you just want to get home and they say, how are you? And you say, I am fine, but you're not in a true moment of meeting. 
And the I-thou relationship might be with your son when he comes home from college, and, and you want that powerful moment of connection that you long for, that you once had. So we have the I-it, which is sort of the casual, not deep moment of meeting, and the I-thou being fully present. And in the Torah, when um, Abraham is called by God, Abraham says, Hineni, I am here that full moment of encounter with another. And when Isaiah is called, Isaiah says, here I am, send me on that mission. And Moses too stops and says, so I think that's what we need when we are called, when we see the trials of our world and we are called out of our houses of faith to bring repair to our world. We are called to say those words or that word, hineni, I am here, I am fully present, because that's the most important first step we can bring on the path of healing. So the question is, what do we carry with us, as the, whether it's a Hebrew phrase or a mantra or a quote? I carry with me Abraham Joshua Heschel's, uh, the great 20th century Jewish philosopher, who said, you forfeit the right to worship God when you denigrate the image of God in another human being. And that's why I confess, Lent is a time for confession, my restlessness with reconciliation, that it may not always be possible. Because if someone denigrates the image of God in someone who happens to be LGBTQ+, or if a well-intentioned congregant in the church gave me a picture following my sermon today of an Orthodox man at the Western Wall saying this was meant to be, uh, today the rabbi spoke, and well, Judy could not pray on that side of the wall. I, I consider, while I respect one's right to separate the genders, um, I do carry that mantra with me always, that you forfeit the right to worship God when you denigrate the image of God in any other human. Please join me in thanking Micah and Judy for their presence here with us tonight. In the Episcopal tradition, the Ash Wednesday liturgy begins with an unusual invitation. The celebrant invites all who are present to the observance of a holy Lent, marked by a posture of penitence and fasting. And after a few days, we might suddenly come to a buzzkill realization that we've been suckered into a pretty bland party. And that now we must recalibrate our expectations of the weeks to come and settle instead into a new season without the sympathies of sweets or spirits or social media. However, beyond the sometimes superficial deprivations associated with Lent comes a deeper call. In this same liturgy, the priest reminds us that for early Christians, these 40 days were also a time when those who had been separated from the body of the faithful were restored to the fellowship of the church. Through their self-examination, they came to terms with the truth of their humanity and their desperate need for the grace of God. In this Lenten time, as we seek to do the work of justice, may we also be mindful of the many ways in which we remain estranged from the communities closest to us. And that even in the wilderness, this moment may serve as a balm to our often aching hearts 
as we participate in the work of reconciliation to our world, to God, and to ourselves. The Calvary Podcast Lenten Preaching Edition is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupka, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to all of you for listening.